There's a solitary, humble, wooden structure on a windswept hill in rural New England. To open the door is to engage our minds, our hearts, and our imaginations. In this place, preachers and professors, past and present, come alive as they walk the aisle, ascend the pulpit stairs, and teach. From theology, from history, and from the Word of God, welcome to the Saybrook Meeting House, an audio production of Saybrook Ministries. This little story and the way it's told is almost as simple and direct as Sparky's cartoon strip. The message is so gentle, there's nothing pompous about the story. It was amazing how Sparky came up with the religious aspect of the story and made it so acceptable. He wanted to be very straightforward and honest. And he said what he wanted to say because he was a very religious guy. When I first looked at that part of the story, I told Sparky, we can't do this. It's too religious. And he said to me, Bill, if we don't do it, who else can? We're the only ones who can do it. I wasn't convinced that was true at the time, but he was right about so many things. It just didn't sound right for a cartoon, for an entertainment. When I read that part, I thought we were going to kill this thing. But by golly, he came through. Those were the words of Bill Melendez. Sparky, as some of you may know, is the nickname of a cartoonist better known to the world as Charles M. Schultz, the creator of Peanuts. Now, this is a picture of Bill, Charles, and Lee Mendelson. And this is the creative trio behind all of the Peanuts television specials. And what Bill was referring to, of course, is probably the most famous scene in the first Charlie Brown special, called appropriately A Charlie Brown Christmas, which debuted December 9th, 1965. And that's the scene where Charlie Brown cries out in an exasperated voice, can't anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? Enter the calm, reasonable Linus Van Pelt, who says, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And then he proceeds to recite the words, those famous words from the second chapter of Luke's gospel. So although the resistance to explicitly Christian content was not as great as it would be today, uh, television networks in 1965 were by no means a bastion of evangelical orthodoxy. Uh, then as now, they were more concerned about selling things to the American people uh, or really um, putting some programming in between commercials is really how they look at it. But Charles Schultz and his cohorts carried on and made sure the recitation of Luke's gospel and the true meaning of Christmas remained in the special. Uh, the final touches on A Charlie Brown Christmas were not complete until just days before airing. The total expended budget had been $96,000. As is no surprise, those involved in artistic and creative endeavors can be plagued by self-doubt. 
After the producers and animators watched a private test screening in a theater, nearly everyone involved thought it was going to be an unmitigated disaster. Melendez expressed these feelings to his crew of animators, worried that they had completely botched this transfer of a successful comic strip to the television medium. But one of the animators, Ed Levitt, dissented from the prevailing opinion and told Melendez, with what turned out to be uncanny foresight, quote, this is the best special you're ever going to make and it will run for 100 years. Of course, the show did air, and it aired to nearly universal critical acclaim. And everything about it, the message, the music, the characters, has gone on to experience that success and staying power. Uh, it's really fair to say that A Charlie Brown Christmas is part of the cultural Christmas fabric of America. Fast forward about 10 years, and here we have a picture of my mother Margaret's parents, Norm and Olga. We lived next door to them when I was a young boy. Uh, Norm and Olga's families hailed from Norway, and so holidays with Grandma and Grandpa were the absolute best mixture of the best of American staples, turkey, gravy, mashed potatoes, stuffing, and Norwegian desserts and pastries, which were almost otherworldly good especially when they had the touch of my grandma. And then here we have a young Ben Keller uh, eagerly awaiting not only the yummy food, but also the post-dinner present opening, which was our Christmas Eve tradition. And last but not least, this is the table at which the dignitaries of the family sat. Norm and uh, Olga as the patriarch and the matriarch, and then my parents and aunts and uncle. Uh, my, gran my grandpa, Norm, would then reach for his King James Bible and open to Luke chapter 2. And he too, just like Linus did in the famous program, would share the stirring account of the birth of our Savior. So in honor of Charles Schultz and my grandpa, Norm, let's stand together and uh, read from Luke's gospel, which we'll be focusing on today. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning. This is Luke 2, verses 8 through 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. You may be seated. And may God bless the reading of his word. As you know, this Advent, we're doing a four-week series called The Gift of the Gospels. And this is intended to remind us, or perhaps teach us for the first time if we were unaware, that each of the four Gospels gives us a unique perspective of Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. 
And because there are four of them, it reflects a, gener- a generosity of God and kind of a superabundance of perspective and information. There's not just one gospel, there's four to help us learn about Christ, to help us grow into knowledge of Him, and ultimately to help us conform to Him. Pastor James has shared this graphic each week. It gives us a brief but accurate sketch of the main theme and focus and style of each gospel. So just briefly, Matthew's theme, fulfillment, his focus, Messiah, and his style is systematic. Mark's theme is power and suffering. His focus is the servant king, and his style is dramatic. Remember, immediately. You see that a lot. Luke, the theme is the good news of the gospel. The focus is the Savior, and his style is thematic, and we'll see more of that. And John, which uh, Pastor James will close with next week, his theme is really the revealing of the Father. His focus is the eternal Son. Remember John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And his style is theological. Uh, The word gospel in the Greek is evangelion, and it simply means good news. Some Bible translations will say good news instead of the word gospel. So in our Bibles, we have these 66 books, and four of them are dedicated to conveying information, eyewitness accounts of the life and ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, For those of you who, if you're new to your Bible or less familiar with it, they're the first books you're going to come across in your New Testament. Two Gospels were written by members of the original 12 disciples, and two were not. So Matthew was written by Matthew, also called Levi. He was one of the 12 disciples. Mark was written by Mark, who is also called John Mark. He was not one of the 12, but he was a close associate of Peter and Paul. You might remember in Acts when Paul had a brief falling out with John Mark because in Paul's opinion he flaked on a missionary journey, although their relationship was later restored. In some ways you could consider Mark's gospel as Peter's gospel because it's likely that the bulk of material in Mark's gospel was from Peter and that John Mark acted as a dutiful scribe or collator. Luke, our focus for today, was written by the physician Luke, also not one of the 12 disciples. But he traveled widely with Paul, as we see in Acts. Remember that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, and they're intended to be read uh, and understood together. You might ask, why are Luke and Acts not one volume? There's a very simple answer for that, actually. When Luke composed them, Both books couldn't be contained on a single papyrus. So having them together as one was simply an impossibility in first century writing technology. Lastly, John was written by John, the apostle, not the Baptist. It's easy to confuse those. John was one of the 12. In fact, Jesus referred to him as the beloved disciple. And bear in mind, when you're reading John, he was the last gospel author Uh, Our best estimate is that he wrote his gospel 50 to 60 years after the events occurred. So he had an entire lifetime to record and reflect on the meaning of these momentous events he witnessed. That's part of the reason when you pick up the gospel of John, 
you're like, this sounds different than all the three others. The other three are sometimes referred to as the synoptic gospels. They have their own flavor. John is different in that way. So if you know your New Testament, you're familiar with the fact that both Matthew and Luke contain genealogies of Jesus Christ. And those genealogies are good examples of something we should know when we're reading the Gospels. First, there are important differences of emphasis from one Gospel to another. Which elements are included, which are excluded, which are expanded, which are contracted. I'm not talking about contradictions or errors. I'm talking about divinely inspired authors making choices about what is being included there. The second thing you should know is that within each gospel, there's often significance in the placement of narratives and stories, what order they're in, why they're in that order, etc. So back to the genealogies as an example. When we look at differences across the gospels, we gain some understanding. So Luke wants to make sure Gentiles understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he begins his genealogy with Jesus and moves backward all the way to Adam. On the other hand, Matthew wants to make sure that Jews understand that Jesus is the son of David. So he develops a Semitic or Abrahamic genealogy in which the number of generations take advantage of Hebrew symbology, which at the same time highlights David as the hinge or fulcrum in that genealogy. So those are differences across the Gospels. Then within the Gospels, you'll note that Matthew chooses to put the genealogy first, and Luke delays the genealogy until the end of his third chapter, right in between Christ's baptism and temptation. That's not a random accident. Indeed, Luke says as much explicitly when he shares that the purpose of his gospel is to provide an orderly account. Now, some additional fast facts on Luke. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Uh, Luke Acts is the largest amount of New Testament material by any single author. Uh, scholars have designated Luke's Greek, which we shouldn't be surprised, he's a physician, They've said Luke's Greek is the finest and most refined of the whole New Testament. His most distinctive structural feature, if you look at Luke's gospel as a, as a whole, Luke's most unique structural feature is the travel narrative, where from chapters 9 through 19, he puts Jesus on a steady, it's winding, but it's a steady road on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to his crucifixion. Luke is the only gospel that provides an account from Jesus' childhood. And Luke probably wrote his gospel while in Rome around 60 or 61. Luke was widely traveled. Obviously, we see that in Acts. And remember, if you read Acts carefully, um, he speaks in the third person, but then there's a pivot point where Luke starts saying, we. So when all of a sudden he's involved and he's on the boat or he's with Paul, then he starts saying we. Well-educated, obviously in the secular arena as a physician, but also as a protege of Paul's, he would be highly theologically educated as well. And then he mentions this name Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus, but by inference we can say that Theophilus was a patron, uh, financial supporter, 
who allowed and encouraged the Luke-Acts compositions to take place. What was Luke's purpose for writing his gospel? Well, like a good organized author, uh, Luke lays out the purpose of his writing right at the outset of chapter 1. He says this, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed." There are many themes and emphases in Luke's gospel. There's a few that I want you to be aware of. A very important one. The gospel of Jesus Christ is meant for the whole world, not just for the Jewish people. Again, that's the wonderful thing we have. Matthew has his emphasis. Matthew is burdened to help the Jewish people understand you guys have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. He's here now. Now, many rejected the idea that he was there now. But Matthew labored on that point. Luke wants to major on the fact, and you see this continues into Acts, he's the Son of God, the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. Another thing he focuses on is the vitality and importance of prayer as a component of the Christian life. You'll see that in Luke and Acts, of course. And in both books, the Holy Spirit's power and work are, are not an addendum. They're a vital part the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a vital part of the Christian's daily existence and walk. Narrative passages that only appear in Luke's gospel. So these only appear in Luke's gospel. First, the entire infancy narrative. The birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, his presentation in the temple, his encounter with the temp in the temple with the teachers of the law, that's Luke. The miraculous catch of fish, in chapter 5, the woman who bathes Jesus' feet with tears in chapter 7, the sending of the 72 in chapter 10, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, chapter 19, and the post-resurrection of Jesus to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in chapter 24. Additionally, the parables that only appear in Luke's gospel include the Good Samaritan, chapter 10, the Prodigal Son, chapter 15, the rich man and Lazarus, chapter 16, and the publican and the sinner, chapter 18. So I've selected four sections unique to Luke to focus on in our remaining time. And I'll ask my family to come up uh, at this point as they get ready to help me. Number one, the four incarnation songs. Number two, the parable of the prodigal son. Number three, the road to Emmaus. And number four, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we're going to do something a little bit different, a little bit less of me exhorting, and more of all of us listening to these passages that are unique to Luke, listening attentively, asking the Holy Spirit to give us fresh minds and ears as we listen to it. Then after each section is read by a member of my family, I'm going to read a hymn that was composed with that portion of Scripture in mind. So I've chosen three individuals for that. I've chosen Charles Wesley, whose most popular hymns include O Four Thousand Tongues and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I've chosen Isaac Watts, whose most popular hymns include When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and Joy to the World. 
and John Newton, whose most popular hymns include Approach My Soul, The Mercy Seat, and probably the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. And I'll ask my wife, Dora, to begin us with the Incarnation Songs. Incarnation Song 1, Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Incarnation Song 2, Luke 1, 67 through 79. Then John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Incarnation Song 3, Luke 2, 13 through 14. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Incarnation Song 4. Luke 2, 28 through 32. Simeon took the infant Jesus up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people. The Incarnation by Isaac Watts. Behold the woman's promised seed. Behold, the great Messiah come. Behold, the prophets all agreed to give him the superior room. Abram, the saint, rejoiced of old when visions of the Lord he saw. Moses, the man of God, foretold this great fulfiller of his law. The types bore witness to his name, obtained their chief design, and ceased. The incense and the bleeding lamb, the ark, the altar, and the priest. Predictions in abundance meet to join their blessings on his head. Jesus, we worship at thy feet, and nations own the promised seed. The prodigal son, Luke 15, verse 11 through 32. Jesus also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country, where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am, dying of hunger? I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told them. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf, because he has, he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never give me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The Prodigal Son by John Newton. Afflictions, though they seem severe, in mercy oft are sent. They stopped the prodigal's career and forced him to repent. Although he no relentings felt till he had spent his store, his stubborn heart began to melt when famine pinched him sore. What have I gained by sin, he said, but hunger, shame, and fear. My father's house abounds with bread while I am starving here. I'll go and tell him all I've done and fall before his face. Unworthy to be called his son, I'll seek a servant's place. His father saw him coming back. He saw and ran and smiled and threw his arms around the neck of his rebellious child. Father, I've sinned, but oh, forgive. I've heard enough, he said. Rejoice, my house, my son's alive, for whom I mourned as dead. Now let the fatted calf be slain and spread the news around. My son was dead, but lives again, was lost, but now is found. Tis thus the Lord his love reveals, to call poor sinners home. More than a father's love he feels, and welcomes all that come. The Road to Emmaus, Luke twenty-four thirteen through 35 Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. 
but they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you were walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together, who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The Road to Emmaus by Charles Wesley. O thou who this mysterious bread didst in Emmaus break, return herewith our souls to feed and to thy followers speak. Unseal the volume of thy grace, apply the gospel word. Open our eyes to see thy face, our hearts to know the Lord. Of thee communing still, we mourn till thou the veil remove. Talk with us, and our hearts shall burn with flames of fervent love. Enkindle now the heavenly zeal, and make thy mercy known. And give our pardoned souls to feel that God and love are one. The Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 25-37. Then an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him and when he saw the man, he had compassion. 
He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, Go and do the same. The Good Samaritan by John Newton. How good, how kind the Good Samaritan to him who fell among the thieves. Thus Jesus pities fallen man and heals the wounds the soul receives. Oh, I remember well the day when sorely wounded, nearly slain, like that poor man I bleeding lay and groaned for help, but groaned in vain. Men saw me in this helpless case and passed without compassion by. Each neighbor turned away his face, unmoved by my mournful cry. But he whose name had been my scorn, as Jews Samaritans despise, came when he saw me thus forlorn, with love and pity in his eyes. Gently he raised me from the ground, pressed me to lean upon his arm, and into every gaping wound he poured his own all-healing balm. Unto his church my steps he led, the house prepared for sinners lost, gave charge I should be clothed and fed, and took upon him all the cost. Thus saved from death, from want secured, I wait till he again shall come, when I shall be completely cured and take me to his heavenly home. There through eternal boundless days, when nature's wheel no longer rolls, how shall I love, adore, and praise this good Samaritan to souls? In this four-week overview of the Gospels, we must never forget the fact that the Gospels are, as we have repeatedly said, good news. Currently, I'm taking a class in evangelism in my seminary studies, and uh, that prompted me to make myself available periodically to a, a wonderful online ministry that exists to help and present the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are asking for spiritual help and guidance and comfort. Even in the last couple weeks, I've been blessed to interact with people and uh, been able to share the gospel in its fullness and encourage them and call them to respond in faith. And this week, my uh, evangelism professor said something that stuck with me. He said, be a sower, not a soil inspector. So we know from the parable of the sower, which is related in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that only one out of the four kinds of soil Jesus talked about resulted in true and lasting life from the seed. And what my professor meant was that it isn't our job to determine someone's type of soil in advance. Uh, the fact is, when we sow the seed of the gospel into people's lives, we don't know, we can't know, what kind of soil we're sowing into. That can only be known, if ever, in retrospect. So the point being, sow the gospel. Not just with your Christ-like lifestyle, hoping that people will see that you're different and catch the hint, but with words. 
faithfully pointing people to a saving God. Remember the Apostle Paul says, how will they hear if a preacher doesn't come to tell them the good news? I'm as, preaching as much to myself as I'm preaching to you guys in this respect. All of us have room to improve as ambassadors for Jesus Christ in a world that is experiencing hopelessness and ultimately without him is bound for hell. Uh, this Christmas season, you're going to, in all likelihood, be seeing your friends and relatives that you see less often. That's one of the great things about this time of year, rekindling those relationships, those friendships. Ask the Lord for alertness. Ask the Lord for opportunities. Ask the Lord for courage. Ask the Lord for wisdom to share the treasure that we find not only in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke and in John, but in the whole Bible as a whole. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning when we have a few minutes to contemplate Luke, who through the Holy Spirit and divine inspiration set to pen so many things to our benefit and our growth. And so many things, even in what we heard with our own ears this morning, that are unique to Luke. And if Luke hadn't written them down, we simply would be without them. And we think of precious stories like the Good Samaritan, like the Prodigal Son. What these tell us of your love and your mercy. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness this morning because we recognize in the audience of Jesus, as he would tell these parables, that those who were dull and hard of spiritual hearing, it would probably be us. And we'd probably be among those asking Jesus for his next trick, for his next big meal, or whenever he was going to do something fantastic. Lord, we admit this weakness in ourselves. Thank you that we can look at the gospel record and know that our hope rests in a foundation of real history. Something as incredible as the most tremendous myth, and yet, as C.S. Lewis said, it was true myth. The resurrection really happened, and the incarnation really happened. Thank you for this time of year when we can dwell on this. Thank you for this study in which we can look at the Gospels, these gifts, through the Holy Spirit, to us. We pray all this in your name. Thank you for joining us this week at the Saybrook Meeting House. We hope you've been blessed by today's podcast. Saybrook Ministries' mission is to provide didactic and devotional content from the Christian faith delivered to the saints, recovered and refined by the Protestant Reformation. Be sure to visit saybrookministries.org for continually updated Christian content designed to inspire and invigorate our imagination and intellect. Join us next week for another journey to the Saybrook Meeting House. Until then, may God bless you.